right, we're live. Um, so you were just showing off your, your shirt. Maybe we can get one more show off now that we're live streaming. Okay. Boom. I got, I got my store of value, Cyber Hornet. What a beautiful sight. Shirt on in honor of the Cyber Hornets today. Well, this, this, this interview, this discussion came about because of them. So I guess uh, thanks are, are in order to the Cyber Hornets and the plebs and the maximalists for uh, pressuring you into doing this. John, the, the Cyber Hornets are, I mean, they're out there representing you. Apparently, by the way, the, the real question is, what is it about you that makes the Cyber Hornets so intensely loyal that they would uh, badger me to death until I came on the show? <laughs> I don't, you know, that's a question for the Cyber Hornets, but I suspect it has something to do with the fact that uh, I tend to like to get into the, the deeper parts of the rabbit hole in my discussions uh, when I talk about Bitcoin. You know, I th excuse me, I think uh, the macro stuff and the economic and financial case and the investment case is all very well and good and interesting. But at this point, it seems so obvious to the point of almost boredom. And, you know, I love the guys like Raul and Preston and Lynn and all those, you know, phenomenal people that are doing great work. But I get it. You know, I, I, I know what the investment case is and I've known for a long time. What I'm interested in is what are the implications of having this thing emerge on the world? And what does it mean for society, for individual behavior, for interaction, for the future? You know, and that's, uh, I think that's part of it. You'll, you know, you'll have to ask them when you interact with them more online and stuff, but I, I think that's most of it. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. I, you know, my, my issue with the macroeconomists and the financiers is, is sometimes they sugarcoat everything because they're thinking I have to describe it in such a way that somebody else that's less committed, that's less insightful than me will agree with a small portion of my argument. So they'll give me money and you keep dumbing it down through three or four or five layers. And then there's nothing left. Like for example, what is Bitcoin to me? It's like, yeah, it's like fire. It's going to change the civilization. What is Bitcoin to you? Um, well, you know, it's an uncorrelated asset. And if you put 2% of your portfolio in an uncorrelated asset, you'll have less volatility. And let's back test this for a decade and see whether or not this might be an uncorrelated volatility reducing thing. And I think, man, that's such a, it's like, so what is the word? It's like so Bitcoin narrow. deserves better than that. But, but also I give you fire and you can conquer the world, change the civilization, reroute the course of human history. And you want to call that an uncorrelated asset? Yeah, like it's, ex exactly. It's a 1%, a 2%. We want people to do a 1% allocation to an uncorrelated asset. And I'm seeing aqueducts and roads and airplanes. And I think, you know, and their defense would be like, we have to talk to these head, we have to talk to the investment advisors in language they understand. But I would disagree. I, I, I think it's, it, it underestimates the strength of human intellect. I think that if you, if you explain to them that this is an engineering breakthrough and the first time in human history, you know, we, ha we have a, a monetary network that will store and channel energy without power loss. You know, it's like a railroad. It's like mass transit. It's, it's, uh, it's, 
something extraordinary that's going to be an underpinning of civilization. I, there were investors that invested in Standard Oil, and there were investors that invested in um, U.S. Steel. In fact, the greatest of financial investors is um, J.P. Morgan, and he's the guy that actually put together the merger that created U.S. Steel, where he, when he merged Carnegie's interest with the other steel interest, it's like they got it. And I think that investors will get this too. I don't think you got to dumb it down and say something like it's an uncorrelated asset to decrease the volatility in your investment portfolio. Yeah, I, I think that's an extremely narrow way to put it. And like you said, I think people put it in that way because they think they're speaking the language of the people that they're trying to entice into this thing. You know, for some people, and I'm sure we both had a lot of these conversations, if you go in with this is literally the incorruptible substance that will transform humanity. Well, you know, you might lose some people in that way. So it, to my mind, understanding the macro arguments is good and a good use of time insofar as it allows you to speak the language to get to the real point that you're trying to make. You know, so I, I talk to a lot of people in that world as well. And uh, if you can make that case, then it's almost like you get to the next level. Nothing, you know, pleases me more than to just jam out on the, at the depths of the rabbit hole. You know, I think that's where the interest in this lies. That's where, it's, you know, to me, Bitcoin is literally stunning. You know, when I think about it, it's almost like it kind of washes away the thoughts in your mind and it, you're in awe almost. And then that awe gets pushed into different, you know, lines of thinking that emerge in your mind as a result and being in that sort of meditated, meditative stunned state. And that's where I like to hang out with the plebs. You know, I like to get the plebs on whether they're, quote unquote, well-known Bitcoiners or nobodies and got on and talk about where they've come to in those explorations. So that's, that's what my interest is. And I, you know, I've noticed in your tweets lately, and I, you know, obviously you, you deal in both words, uh, worlds as well. And I'm sure you have to speak like the language of the macro stuff so as to not come off too, uh, you know, crazy right off the hop. But in your tweets and stuff, you're coming out with a lot of these great insights that I think has endeared you to the plebs and the maximalists and the cyber hornets for that very reason, because that's the depth and the level that they're at as, you know, as the shirt that you, you're wearing implies. So what, what has been your experience in straddling those two when you, when you're making the case for Bitcoin to the people in your worlds? Well, I think everybody, everybody resonates uh, with a different set of metaphors. And it also depends on their context. So for example, if you're, if you're meeting with uh, pure institutional investors in a formal institutional context, then there's six people watching uh, in, a, in a big room or six or 12 or 16 people, then you would use that very formal language of whatever uncorrelated, you know, synthetic safe haven asset, you know, you could use that. But on the other hand, what I've found in life is you have a very different conversation with, with eight people on the team when their boss is there and when the eight people are sitting next to each other than when you have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them. And the, and the conversation, if the conversation is a formal meeting with a hierarchical set of supervisors, it, it has to be very constrained. If the conversation was a one-on-one -on -one meeting in a business uh, setting between nine and five, it would be about here. 
And if the conversation was a one-on-one -on -one meeting outside of business, like, you know, I want to have a heart to heart with you, John. It's like, let's go out to dinner and we, mm -hmm. and we have dinner. And of course that would be a different thing than if I stood up in front of 50 people at church on a Sunday. So, so you almost have four different venues, right? The sermon, the social, the one-on-one -on -one, uh, professional, and then the formal business meeting and the metaphors and the semantics you're allowed to use are different. And the, by the same person, the same person sitting in the one formal meeting that would always go to the, the antiseptic sterile uh, metaphor. If you caught them one-on-one -on -one, off site, right? They might open up to you and they would have the more spiritual discussion and they feel like, sometimes they feel like, well, I can't in front of my boss or my peers. And sometimes they feel like, well, it wouldn't be polite, right? Or it wouldn't be appropriately professional. So even if they believe it, even if they believe it, uh, they won't always share it. Can I tell you one really funny story I had uh, yeah. in this regard? You know, when we bought Bitcoin corporately, I mean, it, I mean the most, uh, the most, challenging environment a publicly traded company is going to buy bitcoin on behalf of other public shareholders right so everybody's walking on eggshells what will the shareholders think and um we went to great lengths to treat the shareholders very transparently and respectfully we i mean to the extent that we we tendered to buy 250 million dollars worth of our own stock at a premium so as to give everybody an option to either buy, uh, to opt into MicroStrategy with Bitcoin or to exit at a profit if they didn't like the idea. We were That's how, you know, when you spend $250 million, you know, in order to cushion the message, it's, it's a lot of commitment, right? But having said that, so we announced the tender offer and then my finance people said, you know, I said, well, how do the shareholders think about this? They said, well, uh, they're all generally pretty okay with it, but there's this one shareholder, this one investor doesn't like it. And I said, and I said, so, and I'm going to meet with them today, right? They're like, yeah, we've lined up a bunch of meetings. So get ready for this one because this guy really doesn't like Bitcoin at all. And you should just get ready for that. So I'm like, okay, suit up, go into battle. And uh, the meeting starts and we start talking and I said, yeah, and so we, you know, we purchased Bitcoin because we have this macroeconomic view and we view Bitcoin as a, as a great way to preserve the purchasing power and the treasure of the company. And, and you know, our, our alternative is to decapitalize the company completely and give all the money back to the shareholders, but then we won't have any capital. And uh, the guy's like, yeah. And, I, and then he goes, so tell me more about this. You know, he said, tell me more about this. I said, well, let me tell you about Bitcoin. I said, you know, Bitcoin, you know, is a, is a decentralized, you know, crypto application on a proof of work. And he said, I don't need to know all that. I know all that shit already. Right. Uh, and he, and he <laughs> literally cuts me off and he goes, Oh, I already know that I own Bitcoin. Right. I own, and so here's the point secretly and uh, privately, he agrees with you. He agrees with me. He's already got it. In his, in his role as a, as a public representative of his investment company, he had to push back. Yeah. And, uh, and so sometimes the same person that believes one thing privately 
And, and by the way, he had to push back reflexively. But then when we had a one-on-one, -on -one, he's like, I get it. No problem. Uh, I'm like, uh, and they're like, well, how did it go? I'm like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. He owns it. <laughs> yeah. So by the way, and then in my private meeting with my investment advisors, they're telling me, you've got to be concerned, but this is a big problem. And you can imagine the ripple, which is like, by the time you go through seven layers, it was like, oh, there's going to be a big problem. If you do this, this is that you, you got to do this. You can imagine why people act so constrained and conservative in, in their views when they're being filtered through layers. But if you manage to build a communication channel directly one-on-one, -on -one, you'll actually generally be pleasantly surprised at the insight of humanity. Yeah. And I think that point precisely is one of the, the big takeaways this year. And, you know, it's been talked about a ton, so we don't have to dwell on it too much, but the likes of you, Paul Tudor Jones, and a few others in the space, just kind of de-risking these conversations generally. So that, because before, in some instances, you couldn't even have them. You know, they'd be dismissed outright. And now you can at least have them. Yes, you have to structure them a bit differently. You have to use a certain language. You have to take a certain track. But at least you can have them. And then as you just articulated, once you peel back the onion a bit, you realize, well, more people are, are interested in this than, than it seemed on the surface, right? Uh, I had a, a similar conversation with a friend a couple nights ago, went, went out to dinner and the, uh, the service was really slow. So it ended up being like a three hour wait before it was all said and done. And so we had lots of time to chat and, you know, we, he was kind of on the side of, you know, capitalism is kind of broken, wealth concentrates too much. We really need to fix the system and stuff. And I kind of took the track of it's not capitalism that's broken. It's the rails on which capitalism runs that's broken, i.e. the currency. And if we could, run it on a different currency, an incorruptible currency, a fair currency like Bitcoin, then we might see some of those problems dissipate. And it may end up being the most optimal way of organizing, coordinating human economic uh, interaction that we have. And we went down all these, this, the, the money rabbit hole and the economics, and we, we, we settled on this thing because he was like, yeah, but what about gold? And I said, well, you know, gold, long history and everything. But I framed it in, in terms of money is such an important substance you know it's like the, the highest concentration of as you say energy our essence our collective value and and productivity that it it attracts every, you know all of our worst attributes as as humans right so it has to be impervious it has to be able to repel our malice and our corruption and all those other things if it's going to continue to serve as as what we want it to serve as that coordinating me mechanism and its properties will dictate how well it is at at repelling those things and i think the story of gold is that it worked exceeding you know worked as well as it could be expected but not well enough you know it couldn't it, you know its property of let's say physicality and centralization meant that it was more susceptible to our corruptive nature and that's what we did to it and here we are and you know what i finished with is what if Bitcoin, you know, I, I know we both love Robert Breedlove. I think the uh, recognition that he makes of Bitcoin potentially being that alchemical concept of the incorruptible substance, if it really is that thing, um, and I know he didn't introduce that term, but I, he in introduced it certainly, I think, to the Bitcoin uh, cyber hornet lexicon. Um, if it really is that thing, then it, even if there's a 1% chance of it being that thing, isn't it worth your time investigating it isn't it worth your time learning enough about it to decide whether or not you should you know be engaging it in some capacity and to, you know to my satisfaction i guess at the end of it he said if if 
that's the case, then yeah, it's probably worth looking at. You know, one, one idea, I mean, it may be a big idea is, is, uh, maybe the world would be a better place if the engineers ran the monetary system instead of the politicians ran the monetary system. No because shit. on the left hand, you have the domain of politicians. And on the right hand, you have the domain of the engineers. And, uh, you know, like, how would you feel if you had a nuclear power plant and a politician showed up and started telling you how to set up the, you know, the rods exactly exactly right? like nobody would think uh, they would never consider allowing political interference in most complex engineering systems because the, you know any any third grader would say you don't do that you're gonna have a meltdown right you're gonna kill us all yeah. and so in the domain of engineering engineers submit their decisions to the laws of nature and conservation of energy and there are rules and they're not allowed to break them and if they break them right the the engineering systems fail but in the in the domain of politi politics right there are no rules and so it's all relative and uh bitcoin represents the singularity where engineering finally uh, finally impinges upon economics it's it's the first engineered monetary system in the history of the world right and and i think we underestimate the engineering element here in the memes and in the metaphors, people trust engineers. I mean, you, every time you get on an airplane and you find a 747 halfway around the, around the world, I'm an aeronautical engineer. I, it, it's a miracle that you can take off in an airplane in New York and you can land alive in London or Paris. If you, if you had any inkling of all the ways that you can die and inkling of all of the engineering challenges you had to overcome. And if a politician came along and said, oh, we just thought we would take one of the wings off the airplane or we would add three more, right? I mean, no one think about it. So I, I think that the real, the magic of Bitcoin is that engineering is arriving to economics for the first time in human history. Mm -hmm. And the the challenge of gold you know to your point is is number one it's a corruptible monetary system because it's centralized and number two it's not a closed monetary system it's an open monetary system and i mean a, a closed engineering system would have 21 million things in it and only heat can come in and go out. The mass can't come in and go out. Bitcoin is a closed system because there's 21 million Bitcoins and you can heat it up, you can cool it down. All closed thermodynamic systems are like that. That's the definition of a closed system. Closed systems are a pretty good idea, right? An open system is when I can put more mass in or take mass out. Open systems have problems. Um, you, know, you can't solve. <laughs> You can't solve for a solution in an open system because of the question of what mass is coming and going. And in gold, right, the openness is I can mine more gold. I don't know how much gold will come and go. And so if I was building a monetary energy network on gold, it's corruptible and it's not closed. If I built, then I rebuilt the monetary energy uh, network on Bitcoin and it's closed system and it's 
hopefully not corruptible, but certainly a lot less corrupt. It's crypto, you know, resistant to corruption. It's the best anti-corrupt system we could come up with in the history of the world. And I think that's a really important idea to, to, to spread for people to start to grasp because I think you'll win over all the engineers in the world to Bitcoin when they start to understand that somebody engineered a monetary system for the first time in human history. Because if there's anything we all agree on, we kind of generally like our engineering. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think always with a, 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 a paradigm shift of this scale, or perhaps there's never been one of this scale, but with all paradigm shifts, you know, I think they're, they're difficult to spot. And so you, sometimes you, it, it's a wonder that the people that you would think most likely to, uh, to spot it early, like the engineers, like the economists, like the, the gold bugs or whatever, so, you know, they, this one, it, it can be so foreign that they miss it. And I think that happened early days in this. I think that's changing now. But um, do you get, do you have people in your life that you can jam out about this stuff with in person? I know you're doing the rounds on the podcast lately and you're on Twitter mixing it up with the plebs, but you know, here you are wearing a, a Bitcoin shirt. You're, you know, you're fully orange filled. Do you have people in your life that you can just sit around the fire and, and talk about this uh, stuff with? Well, you know, the OG was Eric Weiss and Eric introduced me to Bitcoin. And so we sit around and talking about it, talk about it. Eric was in, in the business many years before he would, he uh, discovered Bitcoin when I was sure that it was a fad and I couldn't be bothered. And I was, uh, and I the forgot that I had tweet, an opinion, right? 2013 or whatever it was. So we talk about it a lot more, but I'm, I'm making converts, right? Like I'm, <laughs> you know how it is when you get orange pilled pretty soon you start spreading that to other people around you. And I've got, I've got my requisite friends that I've got the speculators, the guys that buy it and sell it and think it's volatile and they brag about buying it and sell it. And then I've got the ones that were inspired to buy some more and then sell some more. And I'm swatting them down. Like you idiot. Why are you, why are you <laughs> trading this stuff? You know, it's like, like trading Bitcoin is a sign of like a, a lesser intellect, you know, in Absolutely. my opinion, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's like, I'm like, come to your senses, you know, I imagine our respective, you know, all the Bitcoin maximalists are, uh, our message inboxes would be hilarious to read because, you know, these days we're probably, a lot of us are probably getting hit up with interest in Bitcoin because of the price action and the macro environment. And uh, being knowing the maximalists as I do, uh, I know how harshly we swat down the trading, the shit coining, the everything else. And I'd love, you know, even just my inbox, it's always like, don't be a fucking moron. Don't you like, I want you to buy this and I don't want you to think about selling it and certainly not selling it for, you know, paper money. If in the future you want to convert it for a, a service or a good, then you know, that that's allowable, but I don't want you to think about selling it for five to 10 years. I want you to secure it as if your life depended on it. And I don't want you to ever think about trading it or, it, you know, buy, you know, going in the shit coin casino and the language is so, you know, like, as you said, slapping them around, like, you know, in a manner that they're probably not used to. Right. Like, <clears throat> yeah, it's, uh, my friend, that's how uh, we all Eric, talk to our friends now. Eric, it's like picking up pennies on the railroad track. It's exactly. like, yeah, you know, you're going to get a few quarters and you're going to get hit by a train too. It's, or, uh, yeah, like if you roll the clock back to 2007, 
Steve Jobs invents the iPhone. And, you know, people thought, oh, it's a toy. By 2009, the iPhone's got an app store. And if you understood anything about software, the iOS is a new, it's a new operating system. And it's going to be its own ecosystem, at least as important as the web. And it's going, to, it's going to spawn an entire new generation of applications, right? And the mobile wave is responsible for what? Like $5 trillion, five, 10, five to $10 trillion of wealth over the next decade. Can you imagine someone sitting around saying, oh, I get mobile device technology and you're trying to time the market in Apple stock in 2011? Like you're buying and selling Apple stock in 2011? You're like, you want to shake them like, are you out of your mind? I'm, I'm trading Facebook stock back and forth between $8 a share and $4 a share and $12 a share. And you're, you just want to do this. <laughs> like, like, do you not understand that one day every single person on the planet is going to have one of these things in their pocket and it's going to go up by a factor of a hundred and you're trying to like trade Apple stock between $1.25 and $1.17 and bragging about how you bought it at $1.25 and sold it at $2.11. And have you figured out the consequences of being short the share if it goes up by $100? Like the amount, like, are you out of your mind? Like, because, by the way, like, I, I spent 30 years in the business and I obsess over this every single freaking minute of the day. And I wrote a book on it, right? I wrote the book. I predicted the future. You know, I made $500 million investing in these things, right? And I started and, and I put a small amount of capital in. And let me tell you one thing, John, I can't time the market. I have no freaking clue. Like, you know, in 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, I have no clue. And I'm certain nobody in the world understood it better than me. Like some people might've made more money than me, but, but you know, like all these people that think that somehow they're going to time the market and they're going to guess it's, it's probably 10,000 times harder to time the market when you know the future than it is to shit. I mean, to, to, to sit and, uh, and to wait for a decade. And like, you know, this, this Bitcoin thing, this kind of is working in 12 weeks or 24 weeks. But when I did this, I didn't expect it to work in 12 weeks. I did it thinking that in one to three years, people will think I'm not an idiot. And in 10 years, I'll be happy I did it. And I'm ready to get beat to death for the first one, two years if people are going to beat me to death. Because you could have been beat to death on Facebook stock and Apple stock and Google stock and whatever in a one to two, three year time frame. There's anybody that tells you that they actually know the direction of this stuff over the course of days or weeks or months, they're deluding themselves and they're deluding you. And, and it's almost comical because they all hold themselves out as being like experts in something. And like, I have been the expert in something. And the one thing that I knew was I had no, you know, the only time I ever lost money on Apple, the only time, but can you imagine losing money on Apple stock investing in the last 20 years at any point in time from 1997, there's not a single way, John, you could have lost money betting on Apple stock as a hodler in 22 years, except I did it 
I'm going to tell you how I did it. I bought an option. I bought a leap. I actually bought a call option, but, but not short, long. I went long Apple stock. I bought call, by the way, I'm not going to go long Apple stock with a 30 or 60 or 90 day option. I bought an 18 month leap option on Apple stock. The stock traded down. It stayed down 17 months, 18 months. My option expired. I lost the premium and the stock shot up. <laughs> and I'm saying, I freaking predicted the future. I wanted some leverage. I'm so angry. And the takeaway from that is if you believe in something and you have conviction, buy the underlying asset, ideally with very low leverage or no leverage and hold it forever. Yeah. You know, like, and all these other cute things, like you get cute. It's like, how could I be wrong in 18 months? It was 19 months, John. And, and I was right in 19 months and the option expired. It's almost like God, God punishing me for trying to be cute and gamble with this sort of thing. It's like, yeah. And I think, you know, there's, there's, there's two, you, you said, why would anyone ever do that when it's so clear that the safest and most effective option is just to buy and hodl? I think the two reasons is one, you either got something to sell. And I know you've had some discussions with people that may, may be in that category recently, or your time preference is such that, you know, you, you're you have a, a very high time preference and so you're trying to make your gains immediately i don't think you've properly assessed what that looks like over the course of 5 10 20 years but you know that's the choice you make but it's an even more dangerous bet you know you're talking about apple but you know with bitcoin there, there's an anxiety that if you let it go you may not be able to get it back i mean i know it's an open market it's, it's liquid 24 7 but when, when you have an asset like this that has the level degree of scarcity that Bitcoin has. And that has so much, like when people get Bitcoin, they don't just, as we were saying a little bit earlier, like the people that are making a 1% allocation, they're looking at the technical analysis. They're looking at its past performance and saying, maybe this will bounce my portfolio. When you fully go down the rabbit hole, you know, you want to put all of your available, you know, that if it, whatever doesn't impair or impinge on your, your, you know, lifestyle, uh, your standard of living, the rest of it, you want to put it in Bitcoin. And to think that you would be so bold to, to let go of that tether for a while, send it out into the world on the, with enough certainty that you're going to be able to get it back. And then some, I think is, an, uh, is something that gives, you know, real hodlers so much anxiety that they wouldn't even think of it. You know? I said, yeah. I said it to Raul, you know, I said, just, I have anxiety going to bed at night if I'm short, you know, like, there's a, there's the point when I started buying it, uh, like, there's a funny story. I'm not going to say who I did it with. I, I started buying Bitcoin, you know, and they thought I was going to buy like uh, $10 million worth of it. And I wired in a hundred million dollars and I started, and I started buying it and I bought 20, 25 million in the day. And no one had ever bought $25 million worth of, of Bitcoin on their exchange in a few hours. And, and they said, well, what, what are you, you're burning up the entire system and you're blowing out the spreads and this is a big problem and you're gonna drive the price up. And I, I said, well, I, you know, I just need to get this stuff. Like I can't, by the way, the price was down in the nines. And uh, I was just imagining someone was gonna get smart and drive the price up to 10 or 11 or 12 or 30, and I was gonna have to chase it up. So I had anxiety, I'm like, I have to get this trade in before 
the rest of the world comes to its senses. So I'm buying it. I, you know, I swear to you, they put me in a corner and they said, you know, you have to stop now. You're buying too much. <laughs> like they literally put me in a corner and said, you know, you're buying too much. All the other people on the system feel like you're driving the price up. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, really? And, and, you know, and then I went to bed that night, you know, and I was just really like worked up. I could hardly sleep because they had cut me off when I bought 20 million and I wanted to buy 35 million that day. And I was like, what if the 15 million that I didn't buy starts to run away from me? It's going to cost me millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> it doesn't really matter how much you buy, right? It's the same idea, which is I need to buy it all now before somebody figures this thing out. Exactly. That's and by the way, there's, I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the dynamics of this as a, as an asset, if I bought a hundred million dollars worth of Apple stock today, I could say I have big tech exposure. And then at the end of the quarter, I could say, well, maybe I should sell Apple and buy Google, or maybe I should sell Apple and buy Amazon. And I'm still kind of big tech exposed. I mean, you know, you could trade Twitter for Facebook or Facebook for Twitter, or you could decide that you don't like Facebook anymore, but you like Google. The world's not coming to an end. I mean, anybody that's, there's, there's a lot of supply of big tech, 10, 10 trillion dollars worth of it, right? On the other hand, if you decided that Bitcoin was your thing, you're going to buy a crypto asset and you buy a hundred million dollars worth of Bitcoin. And this is, I'm, I say this because I want, this is the way the institutions that buy this stuff are going to think, where they're going to come in there and buy a hundred million or 200 million or 500 million. When you decide that you want that, you go, you go through this thing, okay, what do I want? Well, I don't want big tech because I don't like the underlying exposure to fiat cash flows. I don't want gold because, again, counterparty risk and it's an open system and the gold miners are a problem. Okay, I want crypto. Which crypto? There's 6,500 cryptos. Well, right off most of those, do I, you know, which one's the best crypto asset? Well, Bitcoin's the best crypto asset. Okay, what's the second best? There is no second best. There's no second best crypto asset. There's a crypto asset, it's called Bitcoin, right? Right, there's no second best, okay? It's not, it's not like Google and Facebook. It's not like Apple and Amazon. Yeah, we, we can debate Apple or Amazon, what's better? They both look like tech monopolies to me. They both look pretty good. On the other end, Bitcoin or, no, Bitcoin. Bitcoin's crypto asset. This entire idea of like 60% dominance is bullshit, ridiculous, stupid, right? Like it's stupid. It's not 60% dominant. It's like 96% or 95% dominant, right? The thing, if you compare it as a crypto asset to a like kind of proof of work crypto network, right? That's meant to be a store of value. You know, you're lucky if you, find, if you can scrape together 5% of other stuff in the last bucket. So there is no real competitor. So once you go down that path of, well, big tech, no, this is not my big tech allocation. Gold, this is not my gold allocation. Crypto asset, there's my crypto asset, Bitcoin. It's the only one. Now you got to squeeze through a nozzle, which is a billion dollars a day, and you have to buy it. And when, you know, once you go through, you know, I joked to my friend, Eric, I said, I should, I should tweet, this is the Hotel California you know, of assets, like you check in anytime you want, but you can never leave. He goes, no, you can't tweet that. That's, you know, that's the dark reference. I'm like, I can't tweet it. Like, I can't tweet. And then this morning I see like Nick 
tweets it, right? It's on the Twitter. I'm like, look, he tweeted it. I'm like, it's not, I wasn't so stupid after all. Like, uh, it's a one-way valve. Okay, yeah. so it's one way. You're buying. Why else is one way? Because it's long duration. Like, it's the ultimate long duration asset. And this is, uh, if you don't get this, you just don't get this, right? It's, I say 100 years. You could hold it 100 years. You're definitely, you know, it's longer duration than any bond, any stock, any gold, if you do the math. So I just bought the pharmaceutical grade synthetic gold, pharmaceutical grade long duration safe haven asset. That's what I bought. There's nothing better. Now, why am I ever going to sell it? What, you know, what, am I going to trade it for Google? Well, no, I, I can't trade it for Google. I can't trade it for Amazon. I can't trade it for gold. I can't trade it for any other crypto. And so it's a one-way trade. So why would I ever sell? When I, by the way, when I do sell, I get a tax hit. So I'm going to get capital gains to sell it. So that's, that's a deterrent from selling any asset. But my deterrent for selling an asset is I, I can't find a better treasury reserve asset. There's nothing longer duration there's nothing that's going to last longer. There's nothing that's going to be more anti-fragile. There's nothing that's going to have a, a higher theoretical long-term yield, right? The, the long-term theoretical yield on Bitcoin is like it's, it's the monetary inflation plus the technology uh, utility increase plus the surging adoption, all of those three in the near term. And over the long term, the long-term productivity growth of the economy that adopts it as the standard. So, so those things are all going to drive it. They're all going to drive it in a, in a compelling way. So now why would you sell it? And the only answer, which you pointed out, is like if you want to buy a jet or a yacht, if a maximalist wants to buy a jet or a yacht, I respect that. If you want to buy the palatial villa of your dreams in Ibiza, okay, have at it. If you want to get married or if you want to marry your daughter or your, you know, send off your kids or send them to college, if there's something you love, an expenditure or an asset of passion, I think I, think I could respect that. And, and by the way, if there's something that's a life or death issue, you're going to sell it to give a kidney to somebody, you know, or to save a life. Sure. I respect that, but it needs to be an expenditure of passion. If you're just selling it, in order to trade into another financial asset, right? That's, you're a fool, right? Yeah. So, selling the long duration pharmaceutical grade synthetic safe haven asset, the first one, selling that to buy something which, is, which has got more exposure to fiat debasement or to complexity or, or, uh, or other types of risk or shorter term is kind of just, you know, you had the thing solved and you unsolved the thing. And so anybody that says they're going to trade it, the conclusion you come to is they just don't understand it. They, they don't, they literally don't understand what they're doing and they don't understand what it is. As soon as you understand what it is, you're just going to sweep all your excess monetary energy, your, you know, your savings account into this and hodl forever right? And the other point is most hodlers, they, most people don't, don't have the experience to be able to borrow against an asset because Bitcoin is a very immature asset class. The first decade, there's no mature crypto banking. In the next decade, you'll see the formation of Bitcoin banks or, or crypto banks, you know, the Binance's and Coinbase's and Kraken's and the like, uh, you know, 
and all the institutions will evolve to the point where they accept your Bitcoin as, as uh, collateral and they'll start to grant you loans. And then what you'll see is that eventually the logic, uh, the logical wealth building strategy is you save everything you possibly can in Bitcoin. And at some point when you really want the yacht or the jet, or you want uh, the massive house, or you want, or you need money for, to save your life or to launch your business or, or start up something of passion, then you'll borrow against your underlying Bitcoin yeah. at some rate and then you'll use the bar and you'll leverage up because you know that's what every wealthy real estate family ever did what most people do is they're they're leveraging their assets to go into new businesses and they're keeping the assets forever yeah you know what i tell a lot of the people that are coming to me now about wanting to get in because you can tell them not to trade but you know greed is a hell of a drug and they think and, and so is ego, right? So they think they can outsmart the markets or whatever. So I, I try to instill in them, make Bitcoin your unit of account. So the, 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 the number that you should be watching is your Bitcoin balance. You got 0 0.01, you got 0.1, you got one, you got 10, you got whatever. Not the USD equivalent, not the CAD equivalent. What is your Bitcoin balance? That's, that's the thing that you want to see increase. That's it, right? But speaking of, um, you know, uh, hodling Bitcoin and, and getting it and grokking it for a lot of people. Once you understand it, once you understand what it is, you begin to look at everything else in your life, all your other assets and say, well, would I rather have that? Or would I rather have more Bitcoin? What's a better thing to hold? And as you said, like, if it's something that you love, then, if, you know, that's, that's a, a more serious question. But if it's like, I've got this asset that is doing nothing for me, I barely use it. Maybe it's you know, maybe it's real estate, maybe it's another financial asset, you know, sh should I turn that into Bitcoin? And I, I heard you say recently on another podcast that I don't know if you were, what, what, if this was accurate or not, but you said, you know, houses, yachts, jets, these sorts of things. Um, having been in, you know, orange pilled over the past year, are you looking at, you know, let's say the abundance of assets under your control and saying, would I rather have more Bitcoin or would I rather have you know, that, that yacht or whatever. Are you looking at things like, it, like when you say you go to bed chronically short, are you trying to satisfy that by looking around at your life and saying, maybe I should convert things into more Bitcoin? I'm pretty happy <laughs> with the stuff I have. <laughs> I only buy beautiful things. Like, like, like out of a thousand, if you walked onto a thousand yachts, there'd be one that I would want, like either the one I built, like for example, I built one, it's me. Like I designed every line, like it's, it's I don't have daughters, I don't have sons, I have yachts, right? <laughs> I, I have things that I have, you know, with architecture, like I design, you know, I have an apartment with a hundred, that's built from 165,000 different puzzle pieces of wood, leather and, and metal and stone, right? So they're intricate things that are ref, uh, reflections of my personality and my artistic or architectural um, values. So yeah, if I had stuff that was that I didn't care about, I probably wouldn't own it or I'd get rid of it and I do, but <clears throat> if I have it, it's because it's beautiful and it makes me happy to gaze upon it <laughs> one way or the other. And that's my, that's my view toward those things. And uh, I, I think that Bitcoin is a very beautiful asset. I think I think you should, you're defined by how you're going to uh, allocate your energy in your life. 
right? What are your values? So I only focus my energy on things that, that I find to be beautiful or that I can make beautiful through some investment. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, you know, we, we touched on this right at the beginning, but the, the propensity of engaging with Bitcoin, learning about Bitcoin, and once the, you know, through the process of doing that, realizing or, or beginning to feel the ways in which it changes your perspective, the ways it changes your energy, the way it changes your outlook. You know, you've got hope.com, which you're hosting a lot of the resources that you guys consulted when you made the decision with MicroStrategy and the interviews you've been doing. And, and that's awesome. Kudos for that. But, you know, hope is such, I think we're beginning to re-realize or, or re maybe realize for the first time the power of hope. And, you know, I mentioned it recently on another podcast, but I think for, a, a, you know, you're a bit of a different case because you've been successful for a long time. You know, you found success in the existing system and that's, that's wonderful. Uh, but I think a lot of people, particularly in the younger generation, they were looking out on the world and once, you know, the internet generation, you know, once you kind of gain an understanding for how the world works, surely there's still a lot of beauty in the world, but there seems to be a lot of obstacles too. There seems to be a lot of darkness and you look out and you kind of think, you know, how, or what's the, you know, why bother or whatever. And, there seems to be a lot of impediments, I guess is what I'm saying. Whether that's true or not, that's, that seems to be the perception that predominates a lot of the younger people today. And when you understand what Bitcoin is, what it represents and what the implications are, the future starts to look a lot different because now you have hope. And now you have this thing that seems to be dissolving a lot of those impediments. And one of the things that, and that's such a, that's such a powerful, motivating Re rejuvenated perspective. And one of the things that I'm so interested in, in this space is, again, not so much the economics of this and how wealthy you're going to be in the future. I'm interested in the Renaissance. And the Renaissance is, uh, is going to be a function of how we change our behavior. You know, Bitcoin is nothing but something that allows us to behave differently and interact differently. And I've noticed that across all the conversations I've had and all, you know, with all the cyber hornets and the plebs is these dramatic changes in behavior across the board. And I think part of that is because now you look out and you see kind of limitless potential on the horizon. And that shines a spot spotlight back on you to say, okay, now there's nothing but potential. And the only impediment is you. So what are you going to change about yourself? What are you going to refine? What are you going to do differently in terms of your behavior that's going to allow you to access more of that potential? And I think that's been part of the transformative impact that Bitcoin has on people's perspectives, not the only one for sure, but that they now look out on the horizon and they see hope and possibility and potential and something worth striving for. And I think that's incredibly uh, powerful. And I think that's they're going to be a huge driver of this renaissance we're seeing. And to kind, of, to kind of bring it back to you, and like I said, even though you come from a, a history, you've built a successful life for yourself, and you know, hopefully you don't mind me making this observation, but I, you know, I looked at some of your videos, you know, speeches that you gave, you know, whether it's for MicroStrategy or interviews for the book previously, all the way up until December of 2019, last year. And the person that I'm interacting with right now uh, looks and feels different than the person I watch give speeches from 2009 all the way to 2019. I mean, your, your appearance is a bit different. You know, you, 
and you're, you're smiling more, your energy is a bit different. And so to me, even someone like you who quote unquote had it all, right? You got all the toys and accolades and success. This thing still has a powerful transformative effect on, uh, on you and on your energy and how you express yourself. And I'm just wondering if you've reflected, uh, first of all, if you, if you agree with that uh, characterization, but if you've reflected on to what degree that's, that's been true for you. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, Bitcoin is hope. We could put a period on it, but uh, <laughs> I think Bitcoin is transformative. And, and the idea, right? The idea of, uh, of, um, of a true monetary network is a transformative idea, a very big idea. And I think that uh, people can get uh, worn down in the traditional system. And a lot of times when they, uh, when they come through that portal and their eyes open and they, and they start to see the world differently, it, it kind of is inspirational. Certainly, uh, you know, I see the economy differently today. I see the world differently today. <clears throat> I have a different mission. I have, I have a mission today that, that was not on my shoulders before, but, you know, we all need a reason to live, right? And uh, I think this is a pretty good reason to live. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the definition of hope. I mean, it really is kind of elemental. What, you know, when you use the term hope, I, I just put some kind of words on why I, or maybe not why I see it as hope, but kind of the impact of it being perceived as hope. Why, why is it you think that it represents hope for some of those people that may not be seeing it the same way as you? Well, because for a long time, right. And we can, we can discuss when this started. Maybe it's just been forever the people of the world have been struggling against, against the, um, the current, the political current, right? Struggling against the political current. As, as you debase the currency, everybody has to fight their way uphill and it's a struggle. And it got to be bigger starting in 1971, but we had it from World War One, and I guess people's, you know, data back the fall of the Roman empire, right? When they started debasing the currency and we plunge in the dark ages, right? You can trace a lot of the challenges of mankind to the lack of an effective currency, right? The human condition has struggled from toxic toxicity in the currency, right? When, if Bitcoin, Bitcoin is uh, perfected or engineered monetary energy. Uh, Thomas Edison gave us electricity, electrical energy. And John D. Rockefeller gave us chemical energy. And the human condition has been dramatically elevated by chemical energy, electrical energy. And the human, by the way, antibiotics, you could, you could think of them you know, as biological energy. If you think of what's the impact of antibiotics? Well, we go from living 50 years in 1900 to living 70 years in 1950. Okay, so, so did antibiotics matter? Well, if you wanted to live an extra 20 years, it mattered. Does electricity matter? Pretty obvious, right? There's no city on earth without electricity. There's no skyscraper. Does, uh, does oil matter? 
absolutely. I mean, John D. Rockefeller drove down the cost of energy by a factor of 10,000 on the entire human civilization is based upon oil. You know, if one man did more, right? It's hard to figure out who could have done more than, than that. So we, the humans have struggled under toxic, defective monetary energy for thousands of years, right? Gold was defective. It was defective before 1933 when Roosevelt seized it. It's always been defective. It just was the least defective. If I, you know, I'm reminded uh, that, um, you know, well-meaning physicians bled George Washington to death, right? They bled him to death, right? Uh, because blood was toxic. And so they bled him out. And it just makes you, and that's why we don't really like politicians, right? <laughs> to make decisions about blood transfusion. And so if we look through the history, engineering breakthroughs, you know, when, when we got fire, that elevated us above the animals, you know, that, that type of energy and all of the other breakthroughs were aqueducts channel gravitational energy, right? So channeling of these energies, the chemical energy, the gravitational energy, the electrical energy, they were all really critical. And now, and the human race has struggled under, under a defective monetary energy and Bitcoin is the first, is the first true perfected monetary energy system that we managed to create. And it, you know, it's not, people say it's a discovery. It's not quite a discovery, not in my opinion. I, I, think, it's, I, I think it's an invention. It's like, for example, when we created AC current and we managed to electrify an entire city Right, that, the breakthrough wasn't the discovery of electricity. If you got struck by lightning, you discovered electricity. The breakthrough was the engineering, the channeling and the storage of electrical energy, right? Just like fire, well, John D. Rockefeller didn't discover fire and he didn't discover that, you know, napalm burns, right? A lot of people knew, the Greeks knew that napalm burned in Greek fire. He didn't discover it, he stored it and channeled it. Hmm. And so Bitcoin, is the storing and the channeling of, of clean, clean monetary energy, sterile monetary energy. Why, why did we die at age 50, right, in 1900? Well, because of infection and antibiotics. When you, when you understand the science of sterilization and you understand infection, then we stop dying of infectious disease. We conquer them. And the human, you know, all of these political systems, all these economic systems throughout the history of the human race, they've been collapsing because of unsterile money, right? Toxic money and uh, a currency war. We talk about a currency war. When, when I'm expanding the monetary supply, I'm sucking the oxygen out of the room. I'm sucking the energy out of the currency, but currency is blood. And if I suck the oxygen out of your blood, it's like I'm bleeding you to death. And so the, the breakthrough is we find, if I strap you down and I, I put, put toxic chemicals in you and administer chemotherapy to a healthy 18 year old, right? 
that's the problem, right? We've been administering chemotherapy through the currency to all of these societies to, to varying degrees, right? And, and on the Weimar Republic, it was a quick collapse. And in Venezuela, it's an obvious collapse. And in Argentina and Turkey, it's a, it's a methodic and pretty progressive collapse. And in the US, it's just been a slow, toxic drip that now is a rapid toxic drip. And so I would say come March 2000, right? Imagine you're lying on the table and someone's administering, you know, toxic chemicals into your blood and you've been going about your business and you didn't realize that it's killing you. And then you realize and you pull the line out of your arm and you're like, oh, I don't really need this anymore. I can actually go without the toxic chemo, you know, chemical treatment. And uh, that's the source of hope, right? It's the, it's the breakthrough intellectually to realize that the chemicals weren't making you healthier. It's like the scene in Captain Marvel. You remember, did you see the movie Captain Marvel? No. She's the most powerful woman in the universe and, and yet she can't quite reach her full potential because they put some kind of governor chip in the back of her neck that keeps her from understanding what she can do. And eventually she pulls the chip out and then she beats all the bad guys and defeats everybody. When she pulls that chip out and you realize that she's got the power of a neutron star, man, that's the climax of the movie. Yeah. You see that over and over again. By the way, the thing that's played out right in front of our face is um is the is the modern understanding of uh diabetes and metabolic disease and the role of sugar and if you go if you look go back 30 years people talked about the major food groups and there was no recognition that sugar caused diabetes and um and of course now there's a lot of people would point out right the sugar is toxic and that's the secret to the paleo diet the keto diet and if you have type two diabetes, right, the obvious thing to do is cut off sugar, right? Just stop eating. And um, sugar is toxic, it kills you, causes metabolic disease, right? Causes diabetes. What is, what is monetary expansion? It's diabetes to the civilization. You know, there's, by the way, you look at some of those old videos of me, if you go back 10 years, I was 30 pounds heavier. You know why I was 30 pounds heavier? I didn't understand that sugar is toxic. And at some point it clicked and I figured it out and I stopped eating or drinking anything with sugar and I stopped consuming sugar and starch. I lost 30 pounds and I became happy and a lot healthier, a lot happier, cleared my head. And you know, if you're giving a gift to any individual, by the way, this, my mother died you know, from metabolic disease complications, from too much sugar, right? I know lots of people around me that I love that died from it. Probably everybody, everybody in the world probably knows someone that died of, of um, uh, an illness, which is driven by metabolic disease That's because they had too much sugar. Yeah. Right. And, and by the way, what gave us that? It was like government said the four major food groups jammed that down your throat right? And, and they, were, they were the big advocates of the low-fat diet, which is the most garbagey thing in the world. So if, if we were having a discussion of um, something changing the civilization, I would say, uh, 
take sugar out of your diet will change the civilization. You'll live 10 years longer. And if we were talking about politics and economics, I'd say take toxic currency, right? Replace the toxic currency with pure, clean monetary energy, right? It, it's, it's the same thing. That's why it's so critical spiritually and from a health point of view and, and, and to the civilization. And that's why it's the source of hope. Yeah. You know, I think another one, you know, metaphors stem from the matrix as well, right? Because there's so many good analogies to being unplugged, right? Seeing the world for as it really is. And maybe as a result of doing that first kind of struggling to see the real state of the world and then, you know, building back up out of that, you know, there's so, there's so many great metaphors and memes uh, in this space. And uh, I, I think you're right. I think there, there has been this invisible suppressant or governor on people's minds uh, and in the system that they're forced to operate within. And to now realize, to now have that governor taken off your mind and then realize that you have a tool to express, you know, greater freedom, greater intent, greater will out in the broader world, that's an incredibly liberating feeling. And so your task is just to come to grips, come to terms, come and understand that liberating tool and mechanism and feeling, and then channel it in the way that you see f most fit. You know, and, and it's, it's so fascinating to me that, you know, I talk to so many people and once they, once they grok Bitcoin, once they have that, uh, uh, the veil, once the veil is lifted, once their perception is cleansed, um, they, st that light, that perception gets put on every other area of their life. As you said, their health. I mean, so many Bitcoiners said that, you know, recount that exact same story that you just recounted. You know, before Bitcoin, I treated my body like shit. I, you know, I, I, I you know, I wasn't trying to build my body up. I, everything I was doing was kind of detracting from my health. And now that I'm into Bitcoin, not only do I not want to spend on that, whatever bullshit it was that was taking away from my health, whether it was junk food or, you know, overly hedonistic activities or whatever, but I, I want to build myself up, you know, so I'm getting rid of the, sh the shit in my diet, the fiat food as, as safe likes to say, and, you know, a manifestation of that system, that system, that sick system conjures up all these sick fruits that you're tricked into eating and they have a suppressant effect on you. And once you can eliminate those and start building back up from a stronger, more truthful, more hopeful foundation, you start to become a vastly different person. That's why I asked you the question because it's, it, it seems to me at this point that it's impossible to grok, you know, to be this far down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and not have it influence you on a pretty substantial level in various other areas of your life, you know, and, and I, I was curious what, what they were for you. you. Once you understand, it gives you a moral center. I mean, it, 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 at least it, it drives you toward a moral center. There's a certain morality. And why do you it. think that is? Um, what, what process do you think is, is underpinning that? Well, I think um, humble submission to the laws of nature. Like, for example, if you, let's take the paleos. You know, the, the whole idea of uh, paleo diet and paleo lifestyle is human beings haven't been on the planet for 3 million years. We've only lived in an agricultural society for 10,000 years. Genetically, we're evolved based on the entire 3 million years. So how is it, how do you think we lived 100,000 years ago? What did we eat? What did we do? Do you think we sat around and, uh, and watched Netflix all day? 
you know, that, you know, you do the analysis, you realize like, it, you know, if you came across a, a, a cane of sugar, you know, or, or a field of sugar cane, you'd have to eat like 68 feet of sugar cane to get the equivalent of like two Cokes or, or something right. uh, or, or a carton of orange juice. And so when you start to think about, well, what was life like? Well, it wasn't like the life we have today. And when you start to diverge from that paleolithic lifestyle, like you don't move and you, and you eat super high starch, super processed foods, uh, when you drink, you know, it's not likely that 100,000 years ago, anybody drank a carton of orange juice, ate a birthday cake and sat around all day. You know, it just, you know, and had 16 shots of tequila not likely that happened. So if you're feeling bad after you did those things, it might be because it's an unnatural thing for you to have done, right? So similarly with fasting, right? It's not likely we ate three meals a day every day. Why do you live 90 days without food? It's because the earth goes around the sun and you have a 90 day winter. And for millions of years, mammals have adapted such that they can last through winter on low amounts of food. If the earth went around the sun every two years, your metabolism would probably be half as fast. You'd probably live longer. So we're adapted. And when we live uh, in, you know, in some kind of harmony with, with nature and the way we adapted over millions of years, it tends to be healthier. When we engineer systems like bridges that respect the laws of gravity, right? Aqueducts, right? That, 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 they go like this and the water goes downhill. And when you design an aqueduct that's pretty, that's an S shape, it just doesn't work, right? Things that are designed against the laws of physics and nature don't work. They break, you get immediate feedback. Uh, when you actually apply that to any part of your life, to nutrition, when you say, well, you know, what's violating the laws of nature, right? And then what is, what is in harmony with the laws of nature? you normally get a better result. And I think Bitcoin is, is I'm submitting to the laws of nature in my monetary affairs. And what follows next is, you know, common, is it not obvious to anybody that if you have 10 years worth of food, you're probably going to be, you're going to live longer and healthier and happier than if you've one day worth of food stored up. I mean, it should be pretty obvious, right? If I have 500 million in a treasury, versus 1 million in the treasury, which of the two is a healthier company? How are we even having that debate, right? In the absence of Bitcoin, I have to basically con uh, convert the 500 million in cash into 500 million in stock, and I have to decapitalize the company in order to keep the stock from crashing. And if I don't, the stock crashes, and then, I, the, you know, then the company fails. And if I do, and I get one blip like a, uh, like a pandemic, then the company runs out of cash and the company fails. Or I have to go and beg hat in hand to the government, to a politician to bail me out. And then I, and then I have to, I am basically corrupted by the political process. So living without monetary energy is a corrupting or it's a dangerous or it's a, what is the word? It's, a, it's suicidal behavior. In the absence of Bitcoin, I'm forced into corruption or failure or ruin. And that means since I know I'm likely to be ruined, that means I have to live for today, right? My time horizon shorten, my risk taking increases, and that's a moral hazard. And my entire issue, right, with 
investment today is investment in bonds and equities tends to be a moral hazard. Like we've, we've been forced into a moral hazard. When you buy a bond that yields 0.5% interest and the only way for you to ever make money is for the interest rates to go negative. That's a moral hazard. Yeah, and when you make money doing an irrational thing, when you make money doing an irrational thing because someone who has more power than you is more irrational than you, that's a moral hazard. So if you choose to invest in that thing, you have been drawn into a moral hazard. When you buy a, a risk-free equity, that's called buying a monopoly. When you buy a, when you buy a product or, or buy an equity in a company where the government has made it illegal to buy from anybody else other than that company, how is that not a moral hazard? <laughs> like, it, what if I had a company and the government passed a law making it illegal to buy from any of my competitors and my revenues went up and my stock went up? Like, is, is that not a problem? And I'm not going to mention which companies. We're not going to go there. You can figure it out if you're smart. You have a, in, in the absence of Bitcoin, I have a choice between one moral hazard and another moral hazard, right? In the absence of Bitcoin, if, if corporate treasuries can't buy Bitcoin, they have to borrow money from the government and then they have to buy their own debt and they have to decapitalize and shorten and, and, and weaken themselves or they have to watch their stocks decay to zero. You know, so what is it? Bitcoin is hope, why? Because at least you have an alternative to the morally hazardous trade, right? I, I, you know, I, and I could go on for a while, but I see it, this, it, it, it's that way in, corp, in the corporate world. Corporate executives have this, this perilous moral hazard. In the investor world, they're stuck in the same area. It's a moral hazard. And in the individual world, right, in the absence of, of uh, Bitcoin, you know, I, I said to, you know, one of the things I said today is, right, politicians have destroyed the savings bank and the bank of Bitcoin is going to bring it back. Mm -hmm. Well, most people, the younger generation, they don't remember what a saving, but destroyed the savings account. Most people don't remember what a savings account is. They don't even know what a savings account is. It used to be you're a boy scout, you deliver papers, you save some money, you put it in the bank and a savings account, you get interest. Banks used to form the role of a trusted fiduciary a, a, and they would give you risk-free interest. And that was a happy world, right? I, I drive a tractor, I drive a truck, I deliver papers, you know? I, I work in a bar, I, may, I take my hard-earned money, I put it in a savings account, I get interest, I save for the future, for, uh, you know, I save for a rainy day, I save for the American dream, right? There was a straightforward thing. The political system destroyed the savings account, but that's the same as destroying everybody's path to the American way. Now, the paper boy has to be a hedge fund manager. <laughs> and, you know, I just, John, I, I just, I meet lots of people. I meet, you know how many times I get pitched by someone who's a financial advisor in my life? Probably you know how, yeah, thousands? 
Do you know how many financial advisors have pitched me that were more successful at investment than me? None. None. Okay. Nonstop, never ending people pitching me on financial advice and trading schemes and analyst schemes, you know, quad four this, right? And quad two hey, that and go. arbitrage of this. And I've heard everything under the sun and none of them is successful as me. And what I'm telling you is the only thing I've ever found that works is figure out where the future is headed, some massive trend, wait until the market has selected the winner, like Apple, like Google, right? I mean, before Google, there's Yahoo and the whatever, like Facebook. After the market has selected the winner and after it's obvious it's gonna get 100 times bigger and after it's 100 times bigger than the next best thing, buy some and wait. That's what I figured out. I feel sorry for the 20 somethings and the teenagers and the 30 somethings. They're sifting through all this, trying to figure out what to buy and what to sell and how to time it. And on the other hand, I kind of get angry. I get really angry that 67 year old retiree that's been his, uh, his or her life working hard takes their life savings and they have to guess and bet which of these 500 equities by the way, of the S&P 500, right? How many of them were winners? You know, you talk to me, I would have said to you, well, you know, Amazon's gonna crush every retailer, Apple's gonna crush everybody, Google's gonna crush everybody. I knew that, but like how I feel like for my, my father that's buying British Petroleum and trying to figure out whether British Petroleum is gonna compete with Ex Exxon Mobil or whether the merger will go through it. He's supposed to figure that out at age 80? Yeah. Like it makes you angry. They're like, what, what, you know, what have the politicians done to us, right? That they've, they've destroyed our savings account. They've destroyed the currency. Uh, but it's a double whammy, right? They're destroying your currency by injecting toxicity into it, you know, by sucking the oxygen out of it. And, you ha and by, by law, you have to function with the currency. I can't do business without it. So it's your blood. I can't get rid of it. They've, they've strapped me down and forced, you know, chemicals into my blood for my own good. And then they took away the bank and they shut it down and destroyed it. And, you know, like you get people are literally getting like 13 basis points interest on their savings right now, 17 basis points interest, you know, and you ought to be happy about that because they're planning to make that negative if they can. Right. And then they're just going to take away just 1% of your money every year, or half a percent or whatever it is. That's the world we're living, living in. It strikes me as being a morally hazardous world. And if you take away Bitcoin, there really is no hope. I don't, I don't have a good suggestion for you. I mean, there's just a lot of bad strategy. Like, like it's just a, it's just a matter of how slowly are you going to lose and, and how can I alleviate your suffering for a while? Yeah. Right. And, and what we what happened with Bitcoin is and the reason you believe in it and the way the maximus the reason the maximus believe in it and the reason the hornets will turn tear everybody limb from limb if they attack it, which they should, is Bitcoin is the first time when we finally managed to flip the polarity on something which is slowly sucking our life force out of it. And maybe you actually have a chance 
to do something which is not morally hazardous. And as soon as you find that, then you see you have hope. And then once you have hope, there's a, there's a solution here. Now that gives you the energy to go fix your personal life and fix your family life and fix, you know, it's like, maybe I'm going to be able to do something. Maybe I can fix that park or maybe I, you know, maybe I can get that dog or that horse or I, maybe I can actually learn. Maybe there's a point in doing something that will take me a while because I, I can see a method by which I might achieve that in a, in a moral fashion. Yeah. And I think you, you, the analogy to being drugged up, whether it's chemo or whatever is a good one because once you're not, you know, uh, you know, zombified by this, you know, metaphorical drug of fiat money and all the attendant consequences of that system, then yeah, you can fucking run faster. You can you know, jump through hoops. You can, you know, you can build things. You just have access to so much greater energy through whatever process may be underpinning that hope and, and various others to say, yeah, wow. I didn't realize that this is what even being alive felt like, you know, because we're all, I think it's, I I think we will look back on this period when this, when it's written about in the history books, whether it's a hundred years from now or more uh, as being so obvious, how much of a suppressant on the human spirit, the system in which we're currently living has been and is on all the people living under it. Right now we think, we're at the vanguard of, of modern civilization. We've got all these funky toys and we think, you know, yeah, we've got some political problems here and there, but you know, we're, this is the best it's ever been. And it's, it's pretty darn good. I think once Bitcoin has the opportunity to churn through humanity and, and that Bitcoin Renaissance takes place and we look back from the, the perspective of being, you know, a hundred years into that Renaissance, we'll look back in horror at the circumstance that prevails right now, that people are born because of the type of system and governance that we have, people are born into debt slavery. You're born with a debt now, if you live in a certain, just by virtue of the fact that you live within certain imaginary lines, within a certain jurisdiction, your, your, your potential is capped because people are siphoning off your wealth unbeknownst to you and without your consent or control. You know, and I think that that is why once you realize that that is happening and once you put those orange colored glasses on you can kind of see the matrix and you see the disparity between what's going on now and what the possibilities are under a bitcoin system that is why it's so compelling that's why you got to tweet about it all day long that's why you got to wear the t-shirts that's why you got to have these conversations that's why you got to do the podcast all that because you realize the value uh, of of bringing about that renaissance even a day earlier right? So that the human spirit can be unleashed so that we can see the beauty that's going to net from the expression of that human spirit that's, that's in each of us. And I think that's also why, you know, people ask a lot of times, is Bitcoin a religion? You just said it was kind of a moral compass, a moral center. And I think for that very reason, people start to make those uh, comparisons. And look, you know, religion has a lot of baggage, so maybe that's the wrong word, but is, you know, ideology. Yeah. Yeah. Or ideology. is Bitcoin, you know, the premise for a different orienting perspective on life? I mean, that's what spirituality kind of is. That's what kind of religion kind of is. It informs the perspective with which you look out on the world and say, who am I and, and what is this world and what can be the, the creative force between the two and what, 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 what does that yield? And so from that perspective, and if we're, if we're right about the way we've been articulating this thing, 
you know, I think it does kind of form the basis of a new quote unquote spirituality or a new orienting perspective compass uh, with which to people can use to properly orient themselves in the world. That's what I think religion has, the purpose religion has served throughout the ages. And I, I see no reason why for the reasons that we've been discussing, Bitcoin wouldn't have the same effect. No, I agree with you. I, 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 I think it, it, uh, it subtly changes the way you interpret everything. A great example of, um, of this is when the Fed announced just a couple of days ago, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal, they're buying $120 billion worth of debt each month. <laughs> You know, I did the calculation and I realized that's about $11,200 per family or per, yeah. per household in the United States. And we just take it for granted. And, and most of the conventional world, this, the non-Bitcoiners, they take it for granted that, oh, well, the Fed is buying debt to support the system. But you see, you, you had two very different options. If you just gave everybody $11,200, you'd be, you'd be expanding the monetary supply but it would be expanded equally across all 120 million families. They would buy their own house, pay down their mortgage. They would have an, a credit, an asset they would, you know, to their name. And you would have issued um, in an egalitarian fashion, um, whatever the number is, right? A trillion dollars worth of assets to the people. But instead by buying the debt, the, Fed is issuing the assets to the banks, <clears throat> the banks, and they're doing it to keep, quote unquote, the interest rate low. So the bank is then allowing five or 10% of those people to borrow money to buy a house to cost twice as much as it would otherwise cost, and then owe all of their future cash flows to the bank. So we're basically leaving... 60, 70, 80% of the population out, the 20% that get a quote unquote low interest rate, they, they, they get the gift of debt. They get the, the, the gift of being indebted uh, and having to buy the assets that they want, their house at double the rate that they'd otherwise have to pay. That's the housing bubble and the banks own everybody. And so you're really benefiting the bond traders. You're benefiting the banks. You're driving up the asset values of things that people need and you're leaving some large portion of people, if you can't buy the something with debt, right? If you're a renter, well, how's that help you? Right? Maybe it trickles in some random way, but it's a, it's a gross distortion. Just give the people the money. It's, it's, the politicians have chosen to indebt everyone, you know, with the bankers holding the keys and strengthen the banks instead of choosing to abolish a trillion dollars of debt by issuing the cash directly, I might pay down my debt. Not, by the way, not only would I pay down the trillion dollars of debt, but I also would see all the assets that I need to buy deflate, right? The things that the, that the 300 million people need, they would get cheaper, right? Uh, or maybe I shouldn't say it that way. I would say, I would say that that um, you wouldn't see the bubbles in, a, in a, a set of scarce assets and you would see everybody in an egalitarian way be able to get what they want. It's a simple political decision, but no one even questions. I don't think there's a debate between the Democratic or the Republican Party about whether or not that's the appropriate thing. 
right? I mean, if you had a pre if you had a candidate that said, "I want to give the money directly to the people instead of keep the interest rates low," that would be interesting. We don't have that debate right now. The orange pill, you know, the 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 Bitcoiners they get it. You get it after you get Bitcoin. Before you get Bitcoin, you just don't think very deeply about yeah. the entire subject. And that's that's why Bitcoin is so powerful and so interesting because all of these things, you know, and look, whether you print a trillion dollars and you give it to people or you print a trillion dollars and you put it through the banking system and let the kind of cantil infect, you know, do its thing. At the end of the day, there's still no free lunches. Yes, it would be better to go direct to the people, but you're still, you know, it's going to have its effect on prices and you're not really solving anything. Yeah, and prices so, will go up across yeah, the board. Exactly. And a trillion dollars divided by the money supply. Right, right. And so the reason, you know, Bitcoin is just here now to just smash the whole thing and say, okay, you didn't want, you know, your corruption, your greed, your et cetera, et cetera, didn't, you know, couldn't hold this thing together, couldn't do it the way that it's supposed to do, couldn't do it fairly. So now Bitcoin's going to force the issue. It's this massive wrecking ball of economic truth that's going to that's going to assert its truth on the entire world. And it's happening little by little by little. And you know, we again look if we look back from that perspective of the you know 100 years into the renaissance, you mentioned like the uh the paperboy before and I think it's it's typically characterized as this fiat system pushes people out on the risk spectrum in order to get even to preserve the, the value of their their savings right and and the bitcoin bank is the risk-free rate of return is a deflationary currency right so if you're holding a deflationary currency then you know let's say your return is roughly equivalent to the growth and productivity over the course of a year so maybe you the value of your savings is increasing two three percent a year as a result of reflect reflecting the productivity that it has to value in, in the broader economy. Just imagine, you know, typically these days, if you're middle class, upper middle class, you'll get left something by your parents. Maybe it's a little bit of cash, maybe it's real estate, whatever. Um, but because of the nature of the system that it's in, those things, you know, are highly distorted in different ways, of course. But, you know, dawned on me recently that within a, a couple generations of being on a, on a sound, incorruptible um, money like Bitcoin, just imagine the starting place that a lot of, you know, that a third generation, generation, fourth generation will be starting from. If the same, you know, if you, your first generation leaves some money, then the next one, then the next one. I feel like, you know, people will be starting from a place not of being in debt by 40,000 just by virtue of being born or whatever the number is, but actually having a solid foundation so that both through your education, I know this is something that's near and dear to your heart, through your education, you don't have to be put through an industrial education machine so that you can come out the other end and fit, be a cog in the wheel. But you can actually be, you can actually uh, engage in an education that's in line with your, you know, what flows naturally to you. That and whatever your creative spirit wants to express, you can go through an education system that will help you refine that, and you don't have to worry so much about you know, putting a roof over your head and feeding yourself because with each passing generation, that foundation that you're, you know, that you're, that's passed on to you is stronger and stronger because it's not being depleted with each successive generation. It's not leaking value every single generation. It's stronger and stronger. And then of course, the people that that nets out in the world, when you become, when you leave the education system and you enter the economy, 
what kind of an economy do we get when it's filled with people that are expressing things that they're genuinely curious about, interested in, and passionate about? I mean, we get a far more dynamic, diverse, amazing, beautiful world as a result of that. You know, and so I, again, the disparity between where we will be and where we are now is going to, you know, horrify uh, our future historians, I think. Yeah, I agree. We see the effect of, mo of the spread of mobile phones on empowerment, right? In a world where billions of people have mobile phones, they're empowered in a way they weren't before. We see the effect of the spread of the internet on empowerment. If you think about the empowerment that Google provides someone by giving YouTube away for free to billions of people and what you can do with YouTube, I, I, I think that's interesting. <clears throat> Even though, I mean, you know, we see, the, we see the effect of Twitter and Facebook on empowerment, right? There they're, are critics of this and that and the other thing. Even Amazon, they're all empowering in a way and they're all um, reshaping our world. And Bitcoin is that, that technology, that uh, technology network that's spreading in order to allow people to store and channel pure monetary energy. <clears throat> we need the network in order to, we need the technology or the network in order to make a difference in the world. If all we had was the ideology, well, the ide ideology was Austrian economics. Mm -hmm. You saw how that worked out in yeah, the 20th ster century. Ster sterile without <clears throat> a tool to carry it basically. Right, so it's, it's like a pure math. You know, Isaac Newton writes Principia Mathematica, that's kind of interesting. On the other hand, when we use it to create an airplane, that's pretty tangible. When we use it to create a bridge, it's tangible. As long as it's just words on a piece of paper, it's theory. So what, what we've seen with Bitcoin is, it's the first time we managed to engineer uh, an economic system that stores and channels pure monetary energy and, um, and it's the basis for a new economy, a Bitcoin economy. Uh, the economies it's competing against are, you know, the US dollar economy and then the, and all, every other fiat economy. And, and it's, you know, it's displacing portions of these economies, the weaker ones that will displace faster, <clears throat> the stronger ones, it will displace slower. And it serves as a deterrent, even if it doesn't replace a given economy, and it, it just serves as a deterrent against the worst behavior in that economy, it becomes a countervailing force, and it becomes a source of energy for, for those individuals, organizations, and agencies that adopt it as their base, uh, base energy source for their economy. And so we're, we're watching the world rewire itself and it's it's picking up steam but it, but to your point i mean how long will it take and how far will it uh, how will it spread it's it's hard to know how rapidly it spreads all we know is that it's a cleansing energy it's a clean it's like building an economy on clean monetary energy mm. for the first time in human history and I guess just like Saifedean would say, you know, the world was better under a gold standard. It was the golden age and people ate better food and they created better buildings and their art and their music was better. And 
you know, some people don't like him for saying that, you know, there's little debates in the community, but I get what he's saying and I understand it. And uh, I don't disagree. Um, I think we see the same thing uh, circling the Bitcoin ecosystem, except it'll be stronger and better because, because the effectiveness, you know, of a pure monetary energy network is in theory a million times better than the effectiveness of a gold energy network. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I think that's why you can look back at those golden eras and say, yeah, things were way better under a gold standard. If you see how much better Bitcoin is than gold, then, you know, it gives you that tingly feeling of what the hell are we in store for in terms of a future if the same process plays out, if a, if a civilization built on those rails, on that pure monetary energy uh, is able to be established. And I, we're all placing our bets that it is. What does that look like? And, you know, as I said before, you've clearly been energized and maybe revivified um, as a result of of going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And it's awesome to see, man. I mean, I love I love the tweets. I I love uh, how much time you're giving to the community. Uh, I know I suspect a person like you is going to channel that energy in a certain way. And I've heard you speak a little bit about, you know, what other lines of business you might do with MicroStrategy and stuff. But do you have other ambitions you look out and you see this renaissance happening and you know you're in a strong position both from an understanding point of view and from a, a capital point of view staking your claim on the network that kind of thing do you uh you know do you have what do you have visions of of uh, kind of a, a greater <laughs> role that you want to play in uh, in this world that we're currently creating together well i think um that my checklist is be a responsible advocate of Bitcoin to the investment community. Be, um, be an advocate uh, of Bitcoin to the corporate community. Be a appropriate fiduciary for my own shareholders and my own company and, and protect their interest. I think um, as a Bitcoin, uh, a Bitcoin holder, uh, support the um, the security of the network and uh, the security of the software and and look at different ways to do that. I think um, contribute to education, both both uh, institutional education, which I which I do in one fashion, and then consumer education. I have a big passion and interest in just educating the world. So like the Sailor Academy is just giving away free education to everybody forever. Like if I could just give away a free college degree to everyone on earth, I, I wouldn't mind creating a billion people with PhDs for free. Um, and I think it can be done technically. And so I'm interested in that. And, and to the extent that, um, that uh, Bitcoin, like we're, we're actively working on Bitcoin educational products that we'll host and put in the open, uh, you know, we'll distribute via Creative Commons license. So we'll put it into open source and give away to the world. And I see there's education, all sorts of Bitcoin related education and Austrian economics education and other types of, of education that can be created and given away. Um, I'm excited about that. Um, at the corporate level, MicroStrategy is a business intelligence company and, and we provide um, sophisticated hyper intelligence slash business intelligence software tools to big enterprises. And um, the next step for us is to take that intelligence software and plug it into the blockchain data set 
and and build make it possible for anybody to do blockchain analytics on the, the Bitcoin blockchain for any purpose they might want mm -hmm. and then put that in the market as a as some kind of commercial offering. And so I think you'll see us do that. And we'll look at any other related areas where we can bring together our software assets in order to create something of commercial value in the Bitcoin world. Like I'm, people will go, oh, oh, you like Bitcoin. Are you going to go to Bitcoin mining? Well, no, I, I, have, I have no expertise, no assets in mining to speak of. You're going to do Bitcoin mining. You better know energy and have a free source. You better, you know, have a source of Bitcoin mining ASICs and you better know how to operate a miner. And the fact that I think Bitcoin's a good idea doesn't mean I'm going to compete with the miners any more than I'm going to compete with Binance. I, no, I, I'm not an exchange. Am I going to create a bank? No, I'm not going to create a bank. I mean, am I going to create a, a hardware wallet? No. I mean, I, I think that the Bitcoin economy is just that, right? Square, Square came out with uh, their announcement yesterday, which was just unbelievable. They said they sold $1.7 billion worth of Bitcoin on the Square Cash application in the last 12 weeks, up by a factor of two, quarter over quarter up by a factor of 11 year over year. Mm. Okay, they're a mobile bank. <clears throat> and by the way, they're gonna be mobile payment rails and they're going to bridge all of the payment, uh, the, the payment gaps, the Bitcoin's blockchain doesn't, doesn't solve for it. And they're going to give people a savings account in the bank of Bitcoin in one click from a mobile app. And, they've, and that makes sense because they've got, they're a $90 billion market cap company with all their assets in mobile payments. So they're going to do that. And PayPal is going to do something similar. And I applaud them for doing it. And I hope the Coinbase and Binance and, and Kraken and the like do their thing. And, you know, us, MicroStrategy is a publicly traded company. We're going to be the best publicly traded company with a Bitcoin treasury we can be. And we're going to set an example to any other publicly traded company on how you should manage your Bitcoin treasury. And hopefully people will follow us. And that's a cross I have to bear, right? I can't unbe what I, what I am. I have 30 years in being that thing. So I want to be the best version of that thing on the Bitcoin standard that I can be. So logically, I can be an advocate. I can channel the sailor.org to provide education. I can channel a hundred million lines of business intelligence code and I can channel it to provide intelligence, blockchain intelligence. And then I can channel MicroStrategy as a public entity, you know, to be a great uh, Bitcoin treasury company. And by John, that's enough. <laughs> I was going to say, that's is enough. that it? Is that and it? I, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, I know, I have no, you know, delusions about my place in the universe. Like if I disappear, the world will roll on without me. And if I'm 0.1% of the Bitcoin economy, that's fine. And, and the obvious conclusion is at the point that Mark Zuckerberg decides to buy Bitcoin and he buys $10 billion worth of Bitcoin, he could be the terror Chad. And if, if Mark <laughs> is the terror Chad and Jeff Bezos follows him, you know, I'm happy to fade into the shadows and be a small footnote in the history books. There was a guy, but he's gone now because everybody knows that Mark Zuckerberg is the terror Chad that saved Bitcoin. Fine. 
You know, on the day that Mark Zuckerberg says Bitcoin is built into WhatsApp and built into Facebook, I will be doing this. It'll be fine with me. And I have no delusions of grandeur. And I have no thoughts that, that I'm not here to fix Bitcoin. I'm not here to be the world's greatest miner. I'm not here to grab for everything I can see. You know, the, 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 the lesson that I would give to anybody starting out in business is you got to know your own limitations and take a stoic view. Just because you can do a thing doesn't mean you could, you should do a thing. And out of a thousand good ideas, you can probably commercialize one. And if you focus 150% on the one and you put all your heart and your soul and your energy into that and you bring an overwhelming amount of your assets, the one thing, maybe the world will find value for you, but maybe it won't. Right. Yeah. But your, but your best chance is you focus all of your energy where you have all of your assets, make your decision, set your values, channel your energy into that thing and be happy with whatever the universe gives you. And if you fail, like if, if you try it and it's not working, that that's kind of the world's way of saying you might want to focus more. Maybe, you know, maybe you're not so good at that. Maybe you, like I've done a lot of things that I love. I, I never did anything I didn't love, but sometimes you have to give them up. Like I launched a company called alarm.com to bring home automation. You know, it, it's like all these home automation things. I did it in 1999 and uh, I loved it. I loved it. I ended up spinning it off and gave it up. It's like the child that I lost because I couldn't commercialize it. They raised an extra $250 million, went public with Goldman Sachs. They're a multi-billion dollar publicly traded company right now. I was like, at least <laughs> it would have died if I'd held it too tight. It lived, but for every one like that, there's another six where I loved them and they died. Because, because you know, no matter how much you think it's a good idea, the world has a different view. It's a harsh world out there. And so you got to be humble in your approach to this. And figure out what it is that you love so passionately that you can't let go of that they're going to pry from your cold dead fingers and you channel your energy into that thing and then you're happy i think that's extremely well put and just for the record you won't be devastated if mark zuckerberg becomes the bull 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 and someone makes a rap slash dance video about him instead of just you I have no pride in this thing. My <laughs> um, couple more and, I, and I'll let you go. I wanted to ask you, um, you know, a lot is made of this transition, you know, to a Bitcoin uh, world, hyper Bitcoinized world. Um, and coming from such a, well, the world as it is today and how perverse it is and how ingrained a lot of the systems are and how destructive they are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when you look at that transition, do you see it as a smooth evolution or do you, you know, and you could even make reference to uh, the political dynamic right now, but what do you see when we talk about the Renaissance, when we talk about where we are now, do you think it has to be bumpy or it will be, or do you, do you see um, this transition playing out differently than is often talked about? You know, I, I don't know how it'll happen. Maybe it'll be easy. Maybe it'll be hard. Uh, the most likely outcome is it'll be a different experience in different countries like it seems like it's a bit bumpier in china right 
you know, and, and it's a bit bumpier in Zimbabwe or Venezuela, you know, there's, it's going to be, it's going to be a different experience and it's going to have good years and bad years. There are going to be good days are going to be bad days. And, uh, it's, uh, it's prob there's that uh, saying, right? How do you make the gods laugh? Make a plan. Right. Right. Best, best to keep your expectations low. Don't, uh, don't, uh, get too, uh, committed to one particular thing, you know, but if you buy Bitcoin with no leverage, you know, people are like, well, you know, is it going to dump the thing? Well, I'm not buying it with 50x leverage or 100x leverage. You buy it with 100x leverage and it goes down 200 bucks, you're getting wiped out, you know? That's a problem. How about if you buy with no leverage? When you buy with no leverage and when it goes down by 90%, you're just sitting around asking yourself, is this the time to buy with whatever else I've got left? When it gets down to 95%, you're like, well, maybe is this the point for me to go? all in right so if you if you if you take a long view and you're you know strong hands you know that that meme really just refers to take a long view don't leverage yourself too much by the way the sad fact of the matter is a lot of people that dump this stuff they don't dump it because they got leverage they dump it because intellectually they fell in love with this low volatility future it's like they're thinking that they've got to stop loss 5% below the market. It's like creating, you know, plans are like putting in stop loss orders. It's like, did you ever put a stop loss order on your daughter, your son? Like, I, I mean, something you, would you put a stop loss order on something you loved? I don't think so, right? If you, so in this particular case, my view is it's Bitcoin. Do I have a better option in the world? No, when, you know, would you do it if you knew it was going to work out badly? Yeah. I mean, right. right? I mean, like, would you do the right thing even if you knew you were going to suffer for it one day in the distant future? I, yeah, I think so. Right. What is my option to do the wrong thing? Mm. So I'm, I'm not... I don't know what will happen. I'm not terribly concerned about it because as far as I can see, it's, it's the only obvious choice. If you're a technologist, make a list of all of the dominant technology networks that are going to change the world that are, that are exploding in front of our face today, this year. My list has one thing on it. Okay. If you're a technologist, it's the one thing and everything else is, is not so compelling. If you're, you know, if you're an idealist, make a list of something which has a chance to make the world a better place over the course of the next decade, you know, and, you know, work your way down that list. What's at the top of your list? I, I got one thing at the top of my list. Me too, brother. Now, there's some uncertainty there, right? I mean, they say that successful people are optimist, and I believe it. And if you, you know, if you look on crypto Twitter, it's like you put something out there and you get 8,000 likes or 4,000 likes, and then you get 12 people, you know, that will call you stupid because there's a shit coin that does something better. That's more quantum ray gun, you know, <laughs> immune or something. 
And you got to stop yourself because first of all, only 1% of the people on Twitter are posting that kind of stuff. And so if you're reacting to the people that are tagging you with that, you're reacting to the 1% that are most pessimistic, cynical, snarky, conflicted, whatever. And so that's one reason not to react to it. But the other reason, the other point is that all those people that are, have all that negative energy it's debilitating to them. They, you know, it's like, I won't get out of my, I won't cross the street. I might get hit by a car. I can't buy that because a quantum computer might break it. I can't do that because someone might do this. I can't do that because I can think of, I can think of one billionth of a situation in the distant future where it might hypothetically cause you to incur some legal liability that you might hypothetically suffer for. You know, it's like just so much negativity. And, uh, you just shouldn't dwell on it. So when I, when I forecast out, I'm like, you know, there's going to be volatility, bad things going to happen. I don't know what they are. It doesn't really matter. Make your decision. I made my decision. Make yours. We need yeah. to move forward. I'm not going to sit and I'm not going to freeze to death. I'm not going to counter yeah. my basement. I'm not going to, I'm not going to engage in behavior, which is, which is obviously morally hazardous to my health. Right. I just rather have the uncertainty of the other thing. Yeah, totally agree. And, you know, you, you make reference to uh, t Twitter trolls and, you know, it's, it's kind of, it seems like a, a bit of a secret because on the surface, you, like if you just first came into Twitter and you were engaging in Bitcoin Twitter and you see all these, you know, revved up cyber hornets all over the place. And if you happen to mention quad four or grapes and shit or gold or whatever, they're just going to go after you. Um, and sometimes they take heat for being, you know, toxic and mean and nasty. And that's, uh, that's the secret because you pierce that very thin veneer of, you know, this rightly protective attitude towards this thing that we're all, you know, dancing around and this intellectual pursuit and this rabbit hole that we're all in uh, and, and rightly protective of that. You know, I really, you know, I'm, I, I'm a cyber hornet with the best of them on that regard. But when you connect with these people one-on-one, -on -one, I know you've had the opportunity to do that a bunch in the last few months. Um, and I've done it a, a ton over the last year or so. And like I said to you at the beginning, all sorts of people, you know, the well-known people and the people with 50 followers on Twitter, I'm blown away at the quality and goodness of the people that I'm engaging with in this space. I mean, like, and like we said, I think it's partially a self-selecting sort of bias. You, you get into this for maybe you may be, you know, have a pre-existing orientation, but as we were talking about, how does Bitcoin impact that orientation? How does it kind of align or change your moral orientation? And I like, to me, I love, you know, I love everything about this space, but having the opportunity to connect with good people that as you just articulated, they are the ones that will make the morally right decision, even if it means a more difficult, more challenging path, you know, and it's yeah, and, and just so you amazing. know, my criticism of the of the trolls is is not uh, not the hornets. I think you should. Oh, I know that. I know that. If you're yeah. being if you're on the side of good and you're being constructive, I think you should be passionate and should defend that really hard. My criticism. No, I know what you mean. Is for, I know what you mean. As for people that are just so negative that they want to tear down something constructive just because they want to engage in sophistry yeah over hypotheticals I mean, and so hornets are the opposite i mean there's as you said at the very beginning you know why were this hornet so supportive of putting this together it's because they're just so damn supportive if 
if you're one of them, right? If you're if if yeah. you see things a similar way. And on that point, the last last uh, two questions I have for you is from the Hornets. So you okay. know, of course, a bunch of them hit me up and they were saying, "Can you ask uh, Mike a couple of different things?" And I think we touched on a lot of them, so I'm not going to go through them all. But uh, one of my uh, favorite people in the space on Twitter, his name is Dur Gigi. He's a writer. He's he works at Swan Bitcoin as well, and he's recently been highlighted in Twenty uh, Oneism, which is a art collective that launched yesterday. Yesterday, the fifth. Yeah, yesterday. Um, you know, looking at authors and other artists and meme artists in the space, and just interviewing them, showcasing the work. You know, just a really cool initiative. And I'm not sure if you'll be able I mean, to I see this. his work all the time and I think it's great. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's, he's really amazing. one of the shining lights of the entire Bitcoin community. Yeah. And he's a phenomenal guy, uh, you know, good friend. So, you know, he asked uh, somewhat, you know, it's a difficult question, but uh, he is himself very deep down the rabbit hole. And, and uh, we've had some really great offline discussions about, you know, the, the more esoteric aspects of uh, hanging around down there. And he kind of jokingly asked me to ask you, you know, uh, when Mike, you know, kind of reached the end of the rabbit hole or at, at its current depth, uh, you know, what does he see? You know, when, he, when, he, when you go down the rabbit hole and you come back up to, to, to normal life, you know, what was, uh, what, was at the, what was at the depth of the rabbit hole? Immortal life. That's what I see. <laughs> what I... I, I see Bitcoin and a, and a crypto network as, as the mechanism for all of us to achieve, if not immortality of our own lives, then immortality of our values and our, and our, um, our will. I love that. That's what I see. Um, another one was um, from the guys at Citadel 21. So this is a kind of a cultural e-zine that uh, has been launched recently. And a lot of people from the space are featured as writers and artists. Again, it's kind of a celebration of, of the culture and the community. And um, I know Hoddle or not is, is one of the main driving forces behind that. And uh, he wanted to know, you know, do you ever write, you know, articles about your thoughts on Bitcoin and would you ever write uh, a piece for them? Um. I have written, right? I, I wrote the mobile wave. I, Nobody I mean, read about, it. About, about Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, 50,000 people read it, maybe. But, you know, I, wrote, I write, maybe I will write again uh, when things settle down. But my experience was it takes you a year to write. Writing an article is different, right? But writing a book takes a year, a year and a half to get it out there. And by the time you've done it, right? Imagine what happens a year after we went down the rabbit hole here, like, or a year and a half. By the time you've done it, the world moved on, and most people don't read. Like uh, they don't like to read. So, so it's a it's a bit more challenging thing. I, you know, will I write? Yeah, maybe, perhaps. I, there, I guess what I would say here is there's so many good writers. I mean, there's so many good writers on the uh, in the Bitcoin community. You know, and you see some of the stuff that's being published online. You know what. Dan Held and, and Sylvan writes on Medium every day and and uh, and Parker B and Rob and Parker BJ and, and yeah. okay I I have no pretensions right that like I'm I'm the earnest I I don't think I'm the Ernest Hemingway of Bitcoin like could I write something yeah would it be derivative to what ninety percent overlapping with what they've already written probably 
right? Uh, what's my best contribution? My best contribution right now is to be a, a spokesman for the community as a public company officer to say this is legitimate and appropriate. My, my, and if I'm a, I'm a hash function, right? Like we talk about proof of work. The first guy spends five years to decide to go to, to decide to put his life savings into Bitcoin. The next person spends three months. I spend one or two months and then I drop 500 million into it, which is 20 years of corporate earnings. The next person looks at me and says, oh, I know Mike, I trust Mike, he dropped five, and they read like a press release, John. They read the press release, which is 20 years of earnings. The proof of work is I dropped the 500 million into the network, and then I said I did it and said why I did it. Do they need to read the book? Do they need to spend five years? Do they need to go down the rabbit hole? Do they need to, by the way, that person that's persuaded by, I'm a one-way hash function, right? I'm a hash function, right? They check my hash. They're like, okay, that guy did that. He must have had a good reason. What happens next? Well, 100 people read it. 90 don't pay attention. Eight disagree. Two agree. And two drop 500 million each. And there's the next billion. Then they tell two people they're the hash function, right? And so... My real contribution is I'm the $500 million hash function and I'm going to explain that in an hour or two hours or four hours, or maybe I'll explain it in, you know, by posting a gallery on hope.com. But by the way, if you listen to me for eight hours and you still don't get it, right, you're not going to get it, <laughs> right? Like, I invested $600 million into this thing. Here's eight hours of me talking about it. Do you get it? Yes, no, yes, go crack your piggy bank, take your money out, put it in the Bitcoin network, leave it there, wait for the world to get better. Not everybody's going to agree with me, right? But I don't need everybody to agree with me. I just need anybody to agree with me, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's my view. I, I could write, but it's like we're back to that issue, right? Just because you can't do a thing doesn't mean you should do a thing. I think there's a lot of great writers. I'm happy to support them. I'm happy to promote them. When I feel like there's something that needs to be written that hasn't been written by one of them, I think about it. But, you know, right now, if, you know, if I got an entree with the board of Twitter or the board of Square and they gave me an hour, I'd go get on the Zoom and I would tell them why they ought to put $5 billion into Bitcoin for the good of their company, for the good of the world, you know, to save their almighty soul. <laughs> and then I would answer their questions. And that's probably the best contribution I could make. Because if I showed up with a book that I'd written about it, they would just roll their eyes, right? Yeah. And that's a hell of a contribution. So I think we'll, uh, we'll, we'll I think that will satisfy everyone if that's the contribution that you make. Um, last one. Uh, this came from another Hornet. And uh, it was, it was regarding the hundred K, uh, mark for Bitcoin, which I guess some people are excited about that and others are less so. I, I tend to think that the, uh, the halvings are more kind of seminal, seminal celebratory uh, events. But in any case, you've got a yacht or yachts. The Cyber Hornets are saying, <laughs> who's hosting the 100K or the, 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 the 2024 halving party? And uh, right now, you're the one that's looking the most, uh, most suitable. <laughs> 
I've thrown some good parties in my time. I suppose I'm the right candidate to throw a good 100K party. You're looking like it. You're looking like it right now. Okay, John, you sign me up. So the 100K party. I will go on record. I, I will host. You can, I'm, I'm gonna point, I will point you when and if we arrive at that, I will point you the social chairman of the party. <laughs> you figure out who's going to show up, work it oh, out. Boy. Oh I boy. I'm, I'm going to be, I'm and gonna it'll be, be like the party lot. of the century. Okay. Oh, damn. You put a, you're going to get a lot of people hitting me up as a result of that, but I accept. Uh, and so is it, is it the hundred K mark or is it the 2024 having mark? <laughs> Are we going with hundred K? hundred K. All right. All right. Sounds Stick nice. With the hundred K. Awesome. Um, well, Mike, this has been uh, super fun. It's Friday and I'm sure you got uh, lots of stuff to do. So, uh, I just want to thank you for the chat. It's been, uh, it's been really nice, uh, places where you want to direct people that, uh, you know, sailor Academy, you on Twitter, anything like that. You know, if they want to follow me on Twitter, I'm Michael underscore sailor on Twitter. And if they um, are interested in free education, sailor.org, we're, we're trying to give it away for free. We had 80,000 students show up last quarter. So I'm always interested in trying to spread education in the world. And then if they want to know more about Bitcoin and see all the curated resources, we've got hope.com. Those are three logical places, right. you know, and the, you want to know about my company? It's microstrategy.com. But you, you'll probably find all of it if you find me on Twitter. Right. And I think the final, final point here, we should probably get a capacity for the party. What are we looking at here on one of these yachts? Well, we, got, we have different places to throw the party. And I got two different Well, I got to know if I'm going to organize this thing. I got to know capacity here. This could, this could be on us next year, Mike. If you want a yacht party, two, 200 people. If you want a party in, in uh, one of my homes, 1,000 people. Depends upon- So which is it? Depends upon your, well, I don't know. You're gonna have to, I'm gonna leave you to duke it out with the cyber hornets <laughs> to decide what they want. Although, All right. All right. although actually it occurs to me that I could put my yacht behind my house and you could have the, you could have the both of the worlds. 1,200 it is. <laughs> That's probably the safest thing. All right. Well, we'll I'm sure there'll be lots of discussion about it on Twitter uh, between now and then. So we'll, we'll figure it out. Something um, to look forward to. Yeah. Mike, uh, really appreciate it. Love the stuff you're doing in the space. Keep it up and uh, look forward to the next time we get to speak. Thanks for having me, John. I enjoyed it. All right, brother. Take care. You too. Okay.